don't care if you roll your eyes about it because it's what works. Yeah. Like I come back to this all the time. Like, look, you can disagree or roll your eyes or whatever. I'm like, but do your thing and see if it works. Yeah. And when it doesn't work, let me know and I'll come help you. <laughs> That's right? Like, That's it. I was about to go off on this like, whole tangent like, and you just said it way better. It's like your thing's not going to work. Uh, that was a clip from today's guest, Harjit Singh Gill. Um, this is a super cool conversation. We get into all sorts of stuff about his role, um, really get into things about what are some of the more practical applications that we can apply working with people with addiction and mental health concerns. We also talk about like punk, hardcore, you know, family stuff. It's a great conversation. But before we get to that, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. My man, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So for those who don't know, the uninitiated, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, my name is Harjeet Singh Gill. I am a licensed clinical social worker, which in California means I have a license to practice uh, clinically. I have been doing this work uh, since about 2009 when I got out of grad, when I got my master's. And I have worked in psychiatric emergency and then some work in medical emergency and then kind of worked my way into uh, a few leadership opportunities. And now I am the regional director for Bay Area Community Services. So we're a relatively large nonprofit with over 500 staff. And I oversee our Sacramento region. So everything north of the Carquinez Bridge uh, is my responsibility. So we're recording this in San Francisco. So we're in the like greater Bay Area. Well, we're in the Bay Area, but yeah. you're part of the greater Bay Area. Since we've been here hanging out, the topic that keeps coming up is, oh, you might be seeing on the news how challenging the situation is out here, but it's like, it's overhyped. It's not that bad. We all live in the Northwest. And seeing homelessness and seeing um, people living with addiction and mental health and health and and uh, and not having homes it's it's a common thing uh, up there and it's something that i think anyone who is com who is comfortable having a discourse about it is very thoughtful about how they talk about it because you know it's not like people choose to be in these kinds of situations but one of the things that we get asked a lot about when people come to the northwest and specifically vancouver is like has it gotten worse so since we've been down here, that's been this like automatic discourse. I'm like, hey, you know, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. They're like, almost like people are like, hey, it's not as bad as the news is saying. Sure, yeah. Every city struggles and people struggle. But from your perspective, and I believe you have like a really good insight into this. If you think of kind of what's on the local media or the news media or the national media, is, is the area um, really seeing this huge increase in people um, living outside, experiencing lots of challenges with a, a both addiction and mental health, like a huge increase that, that you wouldn't have had before. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the pit count data, which mm. is the point in time count data for Alameda or San Francisco counties, mm. but I can speak to Sacramento County for sure. Mm. The pit count is up. And so mm. we know that more people are uh, unfortunately unhoused right now. Yeah. So a lot, I mean, BACS is an agency that's been around for 70 years and we function kind of at the crossroads of two things. So we, a lot of agencies do mental health work. A lot of agencies do homeless and housing work. We do both and we braid them as much as possible. So 
it's not like you have to go to one office for your behavioral health and one office for a house of care. Yeah. You can come in, you can see somebody, and we will coordinate your care internally. Right. So we are working kind of at the nexus of those two uh, issues for folks a lot. Yeah. And so we're definitely doing a lot of support work around that in all the communities. We're not as in San Francisco County, mm -hmm. but uh, primarily focused in Alameda. We have some programming in Solano County, which mm -hmm. uh, is between here in Sacramento, and then in Sacramento County. Um, and it's definitely an issue that statewide is getting a lot of attention. Um, and kind of nationally, and I think post-COVID, there's a lot around that. There's a there's some housing stock issues in terms of available housing, yeah. and the cost of housing is, is you know I think everyone knows in California is quite high. So I think all three of those are are kind of nexus factors. My uh, history is actually more in behavioral health, right? We know come from working in psychiatric emergency, and for me it was always like I referred someone to someone to help them with their housing. Like yeah, it was yeah. not my work. In the last two years, I've had to basically get an education in this side of the work. Yeah. Because it was, just wasn't something I knew. Um, and so I've been kind of steadily learning how does the funding work? How does how do all these kind of things come together? And what are the longitudinal kind of historical things? Mm -hmm. What are the kind of race and demographic factors that have come in? How have we kind of gotten here at this point? Yeah. And it's funny, I just had a, a review and it was like one of my self critiques was like, I need, I wish I knew even more about this. And the feedback I got was kind of, you know, you spent a long time on one side and you've been working on this for a few years. Give yourself a break and kind of understand that you're learning as quickly as you can on this side. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be done. I know that there's a lot of solutions being proposed and we'll keep kind of working with counties and cities about how to implement them when they offer them to us. It's such a, it's such a tough, it's tough hearing from a distance people's life, like their struggles yeah. being used as kind of like media talking points. And like this isn't some like anti-media rant or yeah. anything, but it's like, you know, with an election, election kind of looming sure. in the background, you see like that discourse ramping up. It's like cities like Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, like are, are talked about a lot. Yeah. And it's easy to kind of get caught up in the like, oh my gosh, like, you know, this is so crazy. But then like take a step back, it's like, these are actually people's lives yeah. that are being people's lives and people's communities and people's cities that they love, they're invested in, and people who are um, struggling with, with what I think most people can agree with is like a basic right that everyone should have housing, turned into kind of these weird media talking points. Totally. And I think there's a possibility here that people get so lost in the news and like the storyline that they just get disconnected from people don't have homes and they don't have homes for like totally understandable reasons. I mean, exactly. Like, I mean, we know when the eviction moratoriums ended here post COVID, like people evictions went up, right? Like I think yeah. because that was what was keeping some people housed. I think, I mean, the cost of housing, I mean, you and I, I'm sure know people who are a paycheck or two away from not having to be able to paying their rent. Right. Yeah. I, I think that that's just, a part of where we're at right now, mm -hmm. especially in the U.S., around the lack of kind of a livable wage and kind of making that a, making general life affordable to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I th I recently saw a meme that was like, "Don't go outside. Outside costs three hundred dollars." And it's like, <laughs> yes, it's like, I, it's just like, I mean, that's true for you and I. Like, it's yeah, like I'm like, totally if bad. we leave the house, you know, I talked about this with my wife recently. I was like, if we leave the house. The coffee shop plus a piece of toast is going to be $40, 40 to 50, $40 plus a tip. Yeah. 
and then we're going to end up going to the park and the kids are going to want something and that's going to add up and we're going to come home 200 what if we just stay here and like <laughs> what if we just don't leave the house and it's like you can't just leave that and that's true for you know like folks who are employed and well enough off and relatively privileged to be able to kind of do that and so when you extrapolate like the cost of daily life for people it's it's pretty it's pretty brutal out there with the inflation i think in the bay area was up to eight percent i think it's down to five something yeah and so that comes up in like even my contract negotiations with counties right it's like you know how much can we push on this cost because it's costing us more to do the work yeah. if we're running like a residential program oh food costs are up cleaning product costs are up like we need to actually be re re uh, reimbursed for that right so yeah housing work i think is is fascinating yeah. and and tough it it's interesting that you said you can you came from like a different discipline yeah. from it um early in my career i as, as you know i've worked um with uh, at-risk youth and street gangs. And uh, most of my work had been with, uh, it'd been mental health and addiction work and really with an at-risk population. And it had this kind of like, you're always on the go, you're going to these yeah. different places. And of course I would do what you did, like make referrals out for housing. So like my thinking about housing was just like totally not there. Yeah. I did two years uh, stint in housing, in um, uh, low barrier and zero bar barrier housing. And it's the hardest job I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah. I have never experienced something that I took home to that level where I would just like go home and I would cry. And I would, and it's not that I didn't hear hard things before, but that idea of like how hard it can be to get someone a home and yeah. to help them stay in a home. I don't know if the average person or even people in the field necessarily understand the true challenge of housing. So like, what could you unpack for us there for, for the listeners? I mean, I think it's just a scale issue, right? Like when we talk about the scale of the problem and the scale of solutions, it's not, it isn't just to housing, it's like to behavioral health, it's around equity and income. It's like our solutions are often meso level. So it's like this and the problem is this, right? So we need to actually scale solutions and problems together to kind of, to, to make impact. Cause you know, we've seen, you know, you read a study that says like, oh, this pilot was able to do this much with this and that's the end of it. It's like, well, that pilot impacted with, you know, whatever percentage of the population, right? 5% of that population or three or a hundred people create a, a, like a universal basic income kind of pilot will give certain subsect of people an extra this amount of money and watch what happens, right? But then it's like, okay, so where's the impetus to put that on like a mass scale to make a bigger impact, right? Uh, I think that's true in housing. It's true in a lot of our work is, you know, the solutions proposed will impact these subsects or some portion of the population but like where's the where's the push to actually put these things on a scale that would actually impact the, the greater problem and actually deal with it, give us a solution and that gets into a realm i'm not uh I, i'm never involved in which is the political side of things right like i'm not a i'm not a lobbyist i'm not a, i'm not running for office yeah. uh i can i can make that promise to you so it's like but I mean, I can come back and say like, okay, well, you know, I mean, when I have a conversation with somebody about a program we might run, I say, right, so with this much money, I'll write a budget. And, you know, at this point, a lot of my work is working with counties and localities to talk about what we can do in a, in a program or with a certain amount of money. So I'll say, okay, so X dollars, here's what I can provide you. Yeah. And it's like, this is what you get for X dollars. 
this is just like going to the grocery store. If you have $100, you can buy three things, right? Because that's the cost of, because uh, that's, that's what really is going to cost, or the Whole Foods or whatever is going to cost you, right? So it's like, for this much money, this is what you can afford. And if you want these add-ons, if you want to throw in a, a, a block of whatever from a specialty thing, those cost money because I have to come up with a way to do them. So you have to pass, you know, we have to work together and coming up with a, with a way to actually budget for that. And so I think it's the same thing. It's creating programs and create and kind of investing in the the things that we need to the scale we need them, yeah. as opposed to on these micro levels. Well, let's get into what the organization does. Yeah. So, like, what are the if you think about the the population that you engage with, and I know there's, there's like subsets within yeah. the population, but um, who do you work with and how do you help them? We are in a few counties, all the way down as far as Salinas, which is kind of Monterey County area, mm-hmm. and all the way up to Sacramento County. So, I mean, I'll speak kind of more generally about my region, um, but this kind of more or less applies to all of our areas. So we have, again, like behavioral health and housing contracts. There's some overlap. There's like a program that we actually run that is housing specifically to people who are higher level behavioral health consumers. So folks who have high level mental health needs who need housing support. So we've got housing and behavioral health contracts. Those contracts will be, for example, uh, we opened two in Sacramento County, soon three wellness drop-in centers. Come in, we'll get you connected to resources, Get you, you can be here as long as you need. There's snacks, there's uh, juice, there's coffee, there's groups that are just dropping in and out. Very low barrier, no barrier, right? Mm-hmm. So we try to be no barrier about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the housing and ha- uh, side of things, generally by referral. The, there's a system in Cal- and, uh, that we use called HMIS, which is the Homeless Management Information System. That's right. Uh, which folks are referred to us through. And that's based on a variety of factors that the, that the county determines and kind of says, like, this is the order we want you to go in. Mm-hmm. So for those folks, we will do, we might have the ability to do some subsidy to their rent, mm-hmm. kind of do some rent, uh, do some uh, homeless prevention work, right? Mm-hmm. So their risk of losing their housing. So we can go, what do you need? Oh, an extra hundred a month. Like, well, that's better than you becoming, you know, if we can give you that, then maybe you don't end up on the streets and we have a bigger problem because the downstream effects of that are so much worse, right? We know people who end up uh, outside, don't have as much access to healthcare, infection risk, everything kind of goes up, right? The, the more you are away from them. So the more we can give you stability, the better, right? So we can, we can try to intervene upstream rather than downstream. Yeah. Um, and so we have those kind of two facets. On the behavioral health side, we contract with the county to run what are called specialty mental health services, which is, Folks who have a higher behavioral health need and really gear their recovery work and support them in their journey. So kind of honored to do the work because come to this with, you know, I worked previously in county, uh, worked in emergency, psychiatric emergency. I worked in a little bit in medical emergency. Uh, and so I've worked, and then I worked in a for-profit private system for a while. And I came back to this community-based kind of organization. Uh, which has 70 years of kind of doing this work, which I'm really excited about being a part of. And we, you know, we do the same kind of work in, Al- in Alameda County, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree, our contracts kind of vary. Often, the, you know, it's, we respond to what are called RFPs. So a county says, I have a salute, I have a problem, I have this much money, what would you do to fix it? Mm-hmm. How would you resolve it? And so we get to think, I get to think pretty hard about like what I think, mm-hmm. based on what you're telling me the problem is, how much money you have, mm-hmm. You know, I'll create a budget, which is not a thing that I that I learned in social work school or 
Um, but I did kind of learn, you know, in, in, in other worlds, in our punk world, et cetera, mm. right? Like, oh, I only have $4. How am I going to survive today? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, or whatever. Like, uh, so you could take the budget, work backwards and say, okay, so this is kind of like this kind of model works and kind of work together to say and write a proposal to say, here's what we do with the money. Mm. And so that's kind of a, a big part of and then see what the county thinks, right? Maybe we go back and maybe it's we get it. Maybe we don't. Maybe there's a back and forth. We're really working to say, like, how do we, how do we support your effort at being a part of the solution to this problem, yeah. um, in a meaningful way? So there, there are a couple of things I want to unpack for people who are listening, because you and I have used this this term, a low barrier or zero yeah. barrier. So can you? Yeah, those? sorry. So uh, you know, low barrier might be a program where you just have to call and get a referral or something. But by no barrier, it's like the door is open. Yeah. It's posted hours. Doors unlocked. Come in, get a cup of coffee walk in we're going to check you in when you get here so we can keep track of and make contact with you if you need to follow up with you mm -hmm. um, but otherwise the door is literally open you can walk in and out uh, at any of our sites if we went to probably the nearest one of our wellness centers is in oakland and townhouse and we could just walk in yeah. grab a seat on the couch someone would come up and say hey what's going on how can i help you what do you need do you need anything yeah. and if the answer is no i just need a place to sit it's like okay cool well let me know i'll be right over there yeah and that's it right like we leave it very uh we leave it very open for folks to, to engage with the spaces they need to. Why is that important? It's important because people feel like, I mean, for a lot of our population, they feel like they're not wanted in many places, yeah. which is, you know, true or not true. I feel like it's probably, there's, there's a degree to truth to that. People have uh, kind of past trauma, past experiences with a lot of uh, stigmatization. And so creating low to no barrier places that people can just walk in and be welcoming and be welcomed mm -hmm. and be given, you know, the things that, you know, it's like a cup of coffee. We all, I mean, I had a cup of coffee this morning. It's like, it's a part of my routine. Like to give people warm food or a cup of coffee or whatever and just welcome them in, that creates that first. So maybe the first time I come in, you know, I say, no, I don't want to talk to you, Ram. I'm just going to on this couch. Yeah. The next day I come back and I'm like, hey, Place I can charge my phone. You're like, yeah, you can plug it in right there. There's a there's a socket. Feel free. Do you need anything else? No, I just want to plug. You know, my phone died. I need to charge. And the third time, the fourth time, and there starts to be a rapport there, right? Like I see you every day, and finally I'm like, yeah, actually, here's this thing that's been going on. I've got, you know, I've got this, you know, cut. And it's like, oh, let's get you to a, let's see if we can get you over to see somebody. Want to make sure that it doesn't get infected, right? Or it's, uh, you know, yeah, I've been homeless for a year, and ever since I lost my job, and oh, well, you know, let's see what we can get, where do you rank on, let's see if we can get you scored or entered into the system so we can start working on getting supports for you. So that rapport for folks is really important, especially for folks who've been burned so much by life or the system or maybe disconnected from family or what we call natural support systems. So church, community, friends, family, or they may have lost touch with or had some unfortunate history with due to their uh, either behavioral health or kind of homeless uh, symptoms, et cetera, that they've, this allows them a place that they can just be allowed to be themselves. And we're broke. We're like, you're fine. Just be you. Like, yeah. we're, not, we're not worried about it. The low to zero bar barrier system. Um, and I know it, well, I imagine it differs from space to space, like yeah. place to place, how different organizations deal with it. If, if you're someone who just, you know, you're a person who's not involved in the, in the, um, industry of helping others, the helping industry. Um, if you're not involved in that discourse or you're not educated either through school or self-educated about it, it can seem like, well, I don't know, just like fix this, like get people houses. Like, 
and and I don't want to be dismissive. Like I'm using the, like the the wrist flick kind of thing. I don't want to be dismissive of that thinking because like let's say your job is like whatever. Like uh, let's say you're a accountant or you know you're a computer programmer or whatever it is. Yeah. It's not your job to know about about sure, that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so I I totally I totally get it. But the complexities of building rapport and trust and kind of earning that trust and earning the right to help people. Because that's that kind of thing where it's like, you know, earning the right to help people and not just walking in like a superhero cape and being like, I exactly. am here to solve your exactly, problems. Yeah. It requires like different approaches for different people and, and time and lots of time. Yeah. And I can only, I, I've been very fortunate in my life where it's like I haven't had to experience a lot of those things. Uh, the, the situations that would cause someone to be, in, uh, uh, to be unhoused, but also like a lot of the situations that would cause someone to be so afraid of a system or so hesitant to engage. Like you said, it's like, well, I have a cup of coffee in the morning. Or if I need to go to the doctor, I just call my doctor. Yeah. Or I do this or that. Because why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. I haven't had the life experiences to tell me that's a dangerous, hazardous thing, or that they might just say no. Yeah. So that zero barrier, zero to low, low barrier, just for anyone listening who might not have understood the terms, but also why it's so important, I think it's one of the most important and most human things you can do. Yeah. I mean, totally. It's, it's opening a door into saying, like, you're allowed to be yourself here. Like, we're not worried about any of the previous stuff, mm -hmm. and we're welcoming you as you are, and we're here to say, if you need something, we're here. And if you just need a place to be, we're here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think for a lot of folks, like, that's not enough. Like, we need you to, you know, to, to deal with it. Like, move them right in. It's like, well, hold on. We all need time to adjust to things. So if mm -hmm. you want to make a big change in your life, you know, shoving you into the deep end isn't always the, you know, isn't the, isn't the way we normally do things, right? We give mm -hmm. people, you want to start running. It's like, okay, well, here's a plan. It's like, it involves some walking and it's gradual, right? It builds up to something. Yeah. So it's like, it's the same with rapport. Rapport takes time. And sometimes it's quick. Sometimes someone comes in saying, I need help. I want to, and they connect quickly. And sometimes they're wary because the last, they, the last three people they worked with left their job quickly and they've been passed around or they were told to go to one office and they went there and they were actually told to go to another. And it took them three hours to get there. And they've, you know, had to take two bus transfers. And it's like, that's all system fault, right? Like that's, that's not on them, but they've got a right to be frustrated with everything they went through. And we have to be mindful that when we, open, when we create space for folks, that it's, it is a place that they feel welcome. It is a place that they've got things they need. And we take feedback. So if someone says, hey, I'm tired of there always being uh, oatmeal every morning. Like, I hate oatmeal. Oatmeal is the worst breakfast in the world. I personally disagree because I eat it every day. But it's like, uh, but if someone said like, that's just like my least favorite thing to eat, can we get something else? Like, yeah, okay. Thanks for that feedback. Like, what would you like? How can we make this better? Right? Like what, what, what is it? And they, you know, and if it's something we can do, let's make it happen. Right. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or anything like that, right. Feedback at all times. Like, Hey, the groups that you're offering that you may be offering or, um, you know, the locations aren't accessible. We tried really to be mindful about, you know, when I was, we were picking locations, like, is it near? Uh, an area that needs support? Is it near a bus stop? Is it easily accessible? Does it have everything, you know, does it meet all those things? Is it a place that people are going to be easily, easily able to access and feel comfortable coming, right? Um, and not feel like they're put on display or made to go way out of the way, yeah. right? And so like, how do we make this as easy as we can? And so mm -hmm. that's been a big part of what I do. I also noticed 
I'm using a type of language or using a type of language. You'd said like um, mental health consumer. Yeah. And again, just for like for the audience, like why would you use that versus any other kind of, of language to discuss the population? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll use client and consumer, uh-huh. but I because those are, they are here, they are essentially our customers, right? Yeah. They're here to, we exist to serve and provide services and support and accompany them on their journey. Yeah. And it's their journey, not ours. We're here to provide support for that. Yeah. Um, some of the old kind of language, you know, patient, it's like, well, they're not, patient might be used in a hospital setting because hospitals have patients, yeah. but this is an outpatient setting. This is a clinic. Yeah. When you come to the, you know, when, when you come in, you're just a, when I go to the doctor's office, they don't give me that kind of a label, right? I'm just, I'm a, they may call it a visit or I'm a visitor. So we try to use language that destigmatizes it and kind of opens up and gives the power a bit back to the client or the person coming in. The consumer's like, you're actually in control here. You're, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're here. I'm existing to provide support to you and yeah. services to you. And if you didn't need uh, services, I, I probably wouldn't be here. I'd be looking for a new job. And that's that would be, if we didn't have a system where people need, if people didn't need services, it would be, wonderful to put myself out of a job but as long as we need them to be here we're all going to be here doing the work i love what you said though a patient yeah. versus uh someone who is like in charge of like well hmm you know like i i am someone who's going to pick between my healthcare providers yeah. like that idea that someone has a choice and they're exercising a yeah. choice and they could actually go to different agencies and yeah. do these things i i love that idea because it turns it from a like well here's a bunch of people that we that we are going to go and deal with yeah. versus here are a bunch of uh who are a bunch of individuals who are empowered who are going to make decisions now as we're talking about this i can almost like feel the eyes rolling yeah. you know like oh fuck, sure. like really like yeah. sure it's like but yeah like you have to you have to meet people at a human level where people have sorry i'm about to go off on a thing well, so i'm going to push well, it back no, over here, to you here i'll here's what i'll say i don't care if you roll your eyes about it because it's what works yeah like i come back to this all the time like look you can disagree or roll your eyes or whatever. I'm like, but do your thing and see if it works. Yeah. And when it doesn't work, let me know and I'll come help you. <laughs> that's, right? it. Like, that's it. I was about to go off on this like, whole tangent like, and you just said it way it's, better. It's like your thing's not going to work. You can try to, you can, you know, you can be less welcoming. You can be uh, pathologizing, whatever, but it's not going to work. Yeah. People will walk away from it. And the problems that, you know, the, the problems that folks are facing are going to stay there mm-hmm. and, these larger problems are going to say, so why don't you listen to actually what works? Why don't we listen to the feedback we've gotten from, you know, decades of kind of consumer rights and consumer feedback that says like, create spaces that welcome us, use words that are welcoming, pick, find staff who look more like us, right? We're tired of this always looking like the archetype of a therapist in a 1970s movie or whatever, right? Like we need staff and leadership and clinicians and psychiatrists and providers who all look more like us, for example. It's like, we take that feedback in, right? And say, Okay, so how do we do this so that you'll actually want to come here and get help? And how do we serve you in a yeah. way that... Listen you know, to your consumers. Yeah, listen to your consumers. It's like, yeah. this is not that hard. And so it's funny when you get... I mean, because people do the same thing to me. They go, uh-huh, oh, here we go. Like the lefty social worker, bleeding heart, vegan is going to talk about, you know, like, but then don't, then don't and see what happens, right? Like it's not when it doesn't work and you've spent tons of cash and you'll come back and say, well, what? What went wrong? It's like we'll be able to say what went wrong is that you didn't listen to the people who you're actually supposed to be serving. And so talk to any other business. Like if 
you go to a restaurant and they only serve things that nobody wants to eat and they don't take feedback, like they're not going to be in business. And they can't blame everybody else. They have to blame themselves for not listening to the folks that they're supposed to be serving. Anyone who's listened to the podcast will hear me talk about about this stuff. And I was catching myself because I saw you wanted to speak. I was like, okay, where are you going to go? And you went to like the thing that disarms that. It has nothing to do with like this. And not that it has nothing to do with it, but I can like, I can like stamp my foot and go on the morals about it. Yeah. And, and I, someone on the other side can like roll their eyes yeah. and, and do the, but the, the what abouts. Yeah. What you just went to, which is the thing, it disarms both, all of that. It's like, okay, well, this is actually what works. It's proven it is what works. So if you're serious about solving this challenge or reducing the suffering, yep. this is the thing we do. Yep. So if you have a better thing, by all, by all means go do yeah. it but this is the thing that works yeah i mean i think that's the look that's the you know i grew up in a much more conservative part of the state yeah and i still have contact with people and so i, I i'll occasionally have to test my, you know i'll say something or put in the, and post something and get some feedback and i'm like well here's actually the data to support why this is the way we do it this way yeah. i know that on whatever news that you're listening to you know, uh, the idea of a needle exchange is like, you know, oh, look, they're giving out all these clean needles or whatever. I'm like, but here's actually the reason we do that. Mm-hmm. And here's what it does. And if you don't, this is the next downstream in places where they don't do that, whether it's the infection rate of it, you know, whatever, right? Like these are the, uh, the outcomes that come from that. So which outcome do you want? Yeah. Which of these two outcomes would you rather have? Yeah. And then you decide what you want to do and how you want to go about it. And so it, if, if, I get, if I go to that economic, and I'm like, and it's cheaper, it's likely a cheaper solution. It reduces these greater down, you know, all the other downstream stuff. So, but you can do the other thing if you want. But and then I put it back and said, but in this case, you're the one being moralistic rather than economical or uh, evidence based right. because you're deciding I don't want to do item X because I don't believe in it. Yeah. So there are times where I, things that, there are things that I believe right, mm-hmm. and they may or may not bump up against the data or concur with it or go against it. When I push, go back to basic, like, the thing I'm offering you might be. A more economic option, it actually gets helps with the solution to the problem. But you're you're fine to choose the more moralistic route. Or the the when you're rolling your eyes at me, it's actually you're the one who's doing that thing, right? Yeah, you're yeah. the one going there, whereas I'm showing you to what works. And so I kind of bring it back to there always to say the evidence and the solutions are here, and I'd rather not waste time. If you're not interested in doing it this way, mm-hmm. you know I don't know that I'm the right person to help you with that because it's not a thing I want to do. I want to go on something, and, and certainly because I know, especially in your position, it's like you can't really talk like politics, politics, yeah. and, and uh, sure, yeah. I want to be mindful of that. But going back to the beginning of our of our conversation, again, this like media discourse, and again, this is not some anti-media sure, rant, yeah. but just the discourse that's out there. And of course, with elections coming up, things are ramping up, yeah. all the craziness com- that comes with it, people's lives. Yeah. And one thing that I know from living in Vancouver, Monica and I live in Strathcona, which is a part of the downtown east side and is really like adjacent to the area that has the highest population of unhoused people, people living uh, with addiction, mental health, all of those things, like all kind of in that area. In our neighborhood, there is homeostasis. Like everyone has found a way to live together and be yep. comfortable and be respectful of each other. And, and people are viewed, whether they have a house or a tent, everyone views each other's neighbors. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but yeah. we've kind of we've kind of found that balance, yeah. you know, like water finds its own level kind of thing. Yeah. And I, you know, in when I've been here the past couple of days, you know, it's it's been this frontline conversation. You've probably heard it on the news, but the thing that I've been hearing from people in San Francisco who live here, are like, 
hey man, like this is our city and our community and yeah. we have neighbors that live in a house or live in a tent and, and it's fine. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's not what the media is making out to be. And is it a little bit different? Yeah, but things go in ups and they go in, in downs and we're, we're figuring it out. I, I think that anyone who lives in a city where there is a heightened challenge around people, um, unhoused populations or uh, people living, uh, living with addiction and mental health concerns, like out, just out uh, living in the streets, people will find a way and they yeah. typically find a way and they want things where not just them, but everyone is going to be okay. It's really going back to the idea, like these are people's lives. Yeah. It's like, it sucks to see this being this like weird talking point on all these media platforms where it's like, all you're doing is talking about the bullshit that creates the eye rolling or the people kind of like getting super moralistic. And it's yeah. taking away from like, no, there's actual like proven things that are happening here. Yeah. Like the, the, this is what works kind of thing. So with this kind of heightened media attention and this kind of like through line that's going along, is that impacting your your organization's ability to do the work the same way that you've always like? Are you facing more pushback, more questions, more intensity? I mean, I wouldn't say there's more pushback. I think there's awareness and a focus on where you know what are we doing, how are we doing it, um, like from from the community. Or? I mean, I think from from ourselves also, oh. right? Like, I think, um, but I think also partially from people who work with us. I think there's a statewide kind of conversation about what is what have we done for the last you know 10 years or however long and what is what's worked and what hasn't worked and where can we invest more mm -hmm. i think so i think there's heightened attention and i appreciate the heightened attention and focus right mm -hmm. i think it's good that not necessarily that we sensationalize it but i think issues that need support do deserve uh extra attention we should be talking about them mm -hmm. uh the hope is that like the dollars and the funding and the support that it doesn't turn into a punishment of systems that have been trying versus versus funding those systems that are working and helping kind of help us move these things forward mm -hmm. so i mean i think we, we talked before we started about that homeostasis right you know I, I go i'm a runner i went out for a run i see folks sometimes sleeping along my running route just like how do i be a more mindful person mm -hmm. of folks who are sleeping out, right? Mm -hmm. How do I, I mean, I'm out running at 5.30 in the morning. How do I not be a jerk when I'm like sprinting by? Like, okay, well, I have to pick a different route, mm -hmm. right? Let's be mindful of our unhoused neighbors, but also mm -hmm. it's not normalized. It's not, it's not where people should be in theory. Like we should be able to find housing for folks mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a society. Like that's what society should be. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, I push against the nerve, the urge to, make it okay personally like I, this isn't an agency thing but necessarily although i think most people agree but me at least i push against the urge to make to say it's totally fine that you know i mean that folks are not well and out here on you know and sleeping on the streets and like it's like well we should be able to you know we should live in a society that can offer people places to live there should right. be that should be a base level of understanding right for people right. same way we should be able to offer folks medical care and everything and everything and you know and the other basic needs that they need i think those are kind of human ethical standards i think we should be able to live by and at the same time it doesn't help people to stigmatize and to uh sensationalize problems i think those are not helpful towards a solution you know every time that i've kind of i've gone to this space with you about like kind of this media thing 
you've gone back to what I'd say is just like the most practical, um, practical application of, of thinking here, which is it's not okay that people don't have homes. Um, it's not their fault that they don't have homes, but it's yeah. as a society, we should be able to provide a situation where everyone who wants a home should have some form yeah. of stable, consistent housing. And if people have such concerns, great. We should be really reflective uh, of our system and what we're doing, what's doing well, what's yep. not doing well, and then help us by giving us the money and the funding yep. to get to that place where everyone should have a home. Yep. So it's like, I could stamp my feet over here and be like, yo, we have to be doing all these things for yeah. people. And then someone else could be like, we're enabling people. And but we're spending in, too much money and it's not getting us anywhere. And it's like, totally. hold on, okay, let's look at the outcomes. Let's look at how much you put in and how much you got out of it. Totally. But what I love is like every time I, I go to that space, because like I have, I have a lot of feelings about it where yeah. it's just like, I hate seeing it on the news in this like alarm. It, and it's not that people shouldn't be alarmed, but yeah. it's like, I don't think it's on the news from very often from a like helpful alarmist space. Yeah, it's sure. from a like sensationalist, like society's crumbling yeah, kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. And it's like, hey man, like we have a serious, like serious problem yeah. and it has gotten worse and let's do something. And I tend to get in, in this like, Monica hears me like, you know, like I'll be like stamping my foot like, well, if everyone wants to be so sensationalist about it, then just, give way more money, like yeah, do yeah. this. And then the other side has got all of the discourse about like, well, where's the money going, da, da, da. Yeah. Whenever I go to that space, I love how you like bring it right back to, hey man, I welcome the pressure. It's just gonna help us do better. Yeah. And nobody's saying that, that people living without homes is good. In fact, we're all saying it's not, yep. it's not a good situation. So how do we give as many people as would like a stable, consistent home? How do we give them that while having the best services? Here's what I'm here to do. Yeah your calmness about this discourse and like i'd say like you're actually fending off me getting like a little like you know like pumping my fist about it yeah that's such that's such strong leadership and it, it's like you're leading me in this conversation yeah. because like i'm kind of wanting to indulge myself a little bit but you're so practical about it is that a learned state for you or is that something that has, has just like a natural way for you to be i mean i think it's partially evolutionary like i you know i think you know i i've was a long time activist. Like I've oh. been, I've marched on these very street, maybe not this street, but many of these streets in San Francisco for things. Um, and so I definitely have no problem like being pissed, uh, oh. you know, and being angry about things and what, and letting folks know how I feel. Yeah. Um, and then at some point I was like, okay, so what can I, it, but when we're talking about a, a problem or a solution, I'm like, I've always been like a person who's like, okay, so how do I actually, fix that yeah, like how do, yeah. what do i actually need to do about that like what okay. can i do okay so you know like it's like a macgyver problem right like okay i've got like a piece of gum and some dental floss and like i've got to fix this thing yeah. uh macgyver was a television show that most of you probably didn't see uh, who are listening to this podcast <laughs> but uh, i think there was a remake a while back but yeah. you know it's like a it's it's kind of just like a constant problem of like what do i do with what i have yeah um and on the flip side i want to say that i think it's okay I'm a big advocate of pushing for what you actually need, not just taking what you can get. Yeah. So it's like, you know, oh, we only get X dollar. It's like, well, we have to make it work. It's like, no, let's, let's, let's write back. Let's push back and say, we need more actually to do this. Like, yeah. um, but, you know, I'm always looking for like, okay, what do I have? Like, I have plenty of feelings about it. Mm. I have anger and frustration at a lot of problems. They're not lost. Like there's not a, this isn't a, a you know, a monotone, kind of a situation but then i'm I, I like 
process those for a moment. I'm like, yeah, this, I have tons of feelings. Let me think about that. And then let me set them here for a second. Mm-hmm. Like get into my box about like, how do I actually, what do I actually come up with to, yeah. to do this? And then it's like, okay, now I can go back to talking about how much I hate this thing or how yeah. much this pisses me off or how angry I get. But it's like, I'm, I'm always coming back to like an operational kind of thing. Like, what do I got to, what, what can I do? I just love it though, because I keep trying to like pull up a soapbox and yeah. be like, hop on the soapbox yeah, like, with me. Go. And you're like, no, nope. I'm not getting on that. Let's be practical. Yeah. All right. But let's, let's go into actually, um, so we've talked a lot about um, the organization, the work you do, kind of the, the challenges that you're trying to address. Being in the helping profession is wonderful. It's yeah. incredible. It fills up your cup every day. It's tough. Yeah. Um, what are you seeing out in the field uh, in terms of how people are responding to our modern situation, our current situation? So a few things. One, you know, we, and on our website, et cetera, we try to pay folks a livable wage yeah. because we don't want them to have second jobs and third jobs to make ends meet because these jobs are hard enough, yeah. right? So let's make it as possible for folks to live off this one but work and then take their time for themselves. Mm. I'm a big advocate for staff taking P- their PTO. Mm. Like I, I push folks and I'm like, if you're on PTO, in fact, you know, I... But just by chance, like on Wednesday nights, I've got to be at this soccer practice for my son. This is an example, right? And so I sit at a position where I'm in charge of the region. I've got an associate director. And then there's a bunch of, there's a layer of managers who are great and a layer of supervisors below them. So that grouping of people has a a team's thread. And we, and so I had to, I realized this Wednesday evening was going to be a great time for me because I was going to be there from five to seven every week Mm -hmm. to just blast emails. Just like, I'm going to be at my son's soccer practice. I'm going to write like 100 emails every Wednesday and get them all cleared out and walk away. And I realized that people might feel the pressure to respond. So I wrote a long thread to them all saying like, you're going to start getting these. My expectation is that you don't even read them, that you don't look at them. Because if one of you does, then all of you are going to feel the need need to do this. Mm -hmm. And then you're working till 7 p.m. And you're not supposed to. I'm just doing this. So let's try to work on this together, right? And I think that's two of our staff. I could try to push the same thing, which is, you know, when you're gone, you're gone. When you need support, we're here. I tell people a lot of times there are layers to support you that if you'll reach out to them. So if you're a case manager, a care court, what we call a coordinator out in the field, you've got you definitely have a supervisor. That supervisor has a manager. The manager has an associate director. The associate has me. I have the chief of programs. Chief has the C, the CEO, the C, you know the um, the executive director, CEO. Yeah. You're not responsible for anything you feel like you can't answer yourself. And so if you ever feel like you don't know what to do, you can call one person and you can call another. Mm-hmm. If you can't get a hold of your supervisor, there's a bunch of supervisors who will just talk to you. Yeah. Like there's you know, a number of them in the buildings who just talk to somebody and say, I'm stuck. Yeah. You never have to feel like you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you always have the ability to reach out. And I think pushing that to everybody to say, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay mm-hmm. to not know what to do. Your responsibility in that moment is actually to find one of us. You can just grab me. And I mean, people will grab me walking by like, hey, I can't find anybody. I'm like, well, what's up? Talk to me about it. Like, what's going on? And they'll walk me through what's going on, what the situation is. I'm like, okay, so here's what I think we should do. Let me grab your actual supervisor in case there's anything that I'm not aware of that affects that. And let me pull them in to make sure that I'm not over, that I'm not missing something that's bigger that you are all already working on. Mm -hmm. And then like, let's come up with a plan together. And then I'm going to leave you with it. Right. And that's, that's the. And it's like, that's not a thing, that's not a thing I have to do often enough or often, but I mean, the, you know, folks see me walking by and if I'm, I'm always like, everything good? How y'all doing? I'm like, you know, if I see anybody who's looking stuck or puzzled, I'm like, what's up? 
And they're like, oh, I can't do it. I'm like, do you ask your supervisor? Not yet. I'm like, well, you want me to grab them for you? Like, you don't have to feel stuck. You've got support. And I think taking that off people's plates is a big part of creating a sustainable place for them to be in this world, the helping world. Like, they can choose to work in a place that's not as emotionally draining um, for probably similar wages, you know, et cetera. So they choose to do this work. So how do we honor people's time and energy they're putting into the work and giving them the ability to feel like they, they're doing the best they can do and that they're supported the best they can be? You, you said two things that I want to touch on. Um, one was living wage and the other is, you didn't name it, but kind of talking around burnout. Yeah. Um, but let's go to living wage first. As an industry, like yeah. the helping profession, has historically, in most places in North America, inclusive of Canada, been um, getting a living wage is difficult. Yeah. And it is a job that has a huge amount of emotional labor. And uh, this is, and I hope people hear this as a, uh, I don't believe that people are in, the, in this field are doing it for you know, reasons where they're like, they think they're superheroes. They're yeah. doing it because they're compelled to help other people. Yeah. And it's got major, major emotional labor involved. You take home a ton of your work yeah. unless you're a certain kind of person who doesn't do that. Um, so it's got all those challenges where people have to be at their best. They have to be thoughtful in their conversations. They have to be mindful. They have to really be with people. And also, because of the nature of how many of these positions get paid, they also have a whole different level of stress about like, how do I feed myself, my family? Yeah. How do I stay home? In fact, I was just reading an article uh, recently about uh, the amount of people who work in the industry that end up themselves living in uh, unstable housing, uh, losing apartments, ending yeah. up living in cars, while also they themselves becoming homeless while working with unhoused populations. So what can you unpack for us around that, around the needs of this industry for having like fair wages? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we call it a livable wage. Mm -hmm. uh, we focus on trying to make sure that we can find a, a wage that allows someone to just work this one job, right? Mm -hmm. That you should be able to survive on this, on this work that you're doing here because it has meaning. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, you and I both came up in this industry mm -hmm. and some of the wages are brutal. Like they're brutal. just not, and like, you know, I think that's a thing, a point of pride for me is to be able to offer folks wages that they often will look and be like, are you really? It's like, yes, this is all, you, this is the number. And like, I, you know, I, I feel really great about getting to do that with folks. Um, some of that is in how we, there's a bunch of back end stuff about how we set ourselves up to do that. Um, but I think it's important to honor the work. And the workers that are doing the, the folks that are doing the work. I think the other thing is that when you look at the cost of turnover, so crazy, it's so like, intense. It's like you lose three months of productivity. I think for every new for every person you lead, I, I think that's the last thing I read. So it's like okay, you're losing three months worth of money. You're paying the new person anyways. You have the lost productivity of the stress of when that person leaves. Their thirty clients have to go, uh, you know, consumers have to go somewhere. So everybody's covering and their stress levels are up. It's like, how do we make this more sustainable, right? This work. And I think also we have to keep pushing for the funding to match what we actually need to be doing. So it's not over. It's not like a solution. But I think it's a, a place that I'm, I'm more comfortable with, what we, with the way we set our skip. Yeah. So around uh, the finances, though, it's, it's an interesting thing for me 
to talk about because there's such a difference between the not-for-profit world and the profit and the for-profit yep. world. So I'm going to use language that you may be different from here, but in BC, when we're, when I refer to someone like a frontline worker, mm -hmm. especially in housing, it could be someone who would be maybe walking through the downtown east side, walking through alleys, yep. um, interacting with people who are unhoused, and trying to find them housing by the end of the day. Or it could be someone working at a set of apartments who are just there to like help people, connect them to services, make sure things are running smooth. Um, it could be a, a variety of services that are all really complex and have a ton of emotional labor, but don't necessarily require a high level of education. And let's say maybe a bachelor's degree, but not necessarily not a master's degree. And, um, and also like some people who maybe didn't complete high school. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. In fact, I think there are a lot of people who are highly skilled at helping or who could become highly skilled at helping who maybe don't have a formal education, but are like unbelievably skilled yep. and, and education shouldn't be a barrier at that level. I'd even go so far as to say is that I don't think, I think there are a lot of people who could be great counselors and therapists who maybe don't have like a master's degree, but who could be incredible uh, in that space if they were just given access to like appropriate training um, that maybe they don't have the time or space or ability to go and do uh, a university degree. So when I think of all the people who I've worked in a frontline space or people who are um, able to work at, at different levels uh, without formal education, I've seen that often be a reason why people don't get paid as much money. Sure, it's like yeah. you don't have a bachelor's, you don't have a master's. It's like, yeah, but they're doing like doing important work. They're doing super important, yeah. highly skilled work. That's like really, really tough. In fact, if I think of the people that I know who are walking through alleys in the downtown east side, like connecting with unhoused populations and really trying to, or at least connect them with services, that's like some of the most important human work that you could do that is highly skilled. Yep. That's like, you should get paid really, really well for get, that. that. That is a job that most people don't want. And because and there's a there's a skill to it. There's an ability to be able to connect to people that has to be there. You have to be a certain kind of person. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I think we we see that, and it's like you know our our scaling tries to to note that. And I, I mean, we use similar language here, like folks who are either doing case what we you know have traditionally called case management, right, uh -huh. um, and or have uh, or do support work for. In our drop-in centers, et cetera, like we, we try to make sure that they all start at the same place and have the support they need to do that work. Yeah. And we recognize that for what it is. I think it's a industry, I mean, it's an industry that has a lot of problems also. I mean, there's critiques of like that were published long ago of the unpaid internship for even grad school, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, oh, you're getting, you're soaking up. But I mean, there's pros and cons to that. So mm -hmm. I'm not uh, here to necessarily start a fight in the papers of the journals, but I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of air around folks who, especially with lived experience who've come in, mm -hmm. who've been historically underpaid for the work that they've done. Yeah. So, you know, giving them a different title, using their previous experiences, maybe a consumer of behavioral health services or having been formerly homeless, yeah. but then saying, well, they're technically unskilled. It's like, well, no, they actually probably have more expertise. They have more expertise than you and I do. Totally. Like they've been through this. So shouldn't we lean on them more, right? Well, and, and, and sorry to interrupt, but the yeah. contrast I want to make is like in the for-profit world, it's like, you know, you expect people to have a level of education yeah. and they get paid for that level of education, yeah. right? So when you see someone, someone has a master's or a PhD, it's like, 
if you're in the for-profit world, that's like, oh, okay, we're going to move them to a different scale. Yeah. yeah. We in the not-for-profit world, it's like almost like applying the same thinking to. But it's like, oh, you have a master's degree. Well, we'll go yeah, to the space. Much. But it's like, well, what if someone doesn't have a master's degree, but they have lived experience yep. and they have, you know, let's say a um, not just their lived experience, but they've had like specific training that would enable them to do work. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be able? Why would we apply? working for the for-profit or the logic for the for-profit world to the not-for-profit world that has all of these nuances. And I'm not asking you to no, answer yeah. for the system. No, but. I mean, I, I agree. It's like, I think that, that those scales need a lot of uh, rewriting. We need to actually be analyzing what is the work that you're doing and how it should be and what's fair to the, the kind of work you do, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, um, how do we make sure that we... And I mean, to me, it's always about making sure people feel taken care of, right? Like, how do we make sure that you are able to feel good about the work you do here, feel like you're being fairly compensated, feel like there's not a differentiation between you and another peer, another staff member, uh, especially among within those groupings um, that feels like it's based on anything other than experience and, and quality of your work, yeah. right? But it's true. It's like, uh, you know, if you're a teacher and you have, a master's, you get more than a teacher who doesn't have a master's. There's a rationale to that, right? You do the extra training, but you're both going to be teaching in a classroom in a similar setting. Here, it's like, well, that person walking, you know, through the downtown east side is doing something very specific that has a very specific skill set, which is valuable. Mm -hmm. Like, you and I can't just go and do that work today. I mean, we could we could do it, but it probably wouldn't do as well, done as well, and it might not have the impact it does. So that person is kind of a a specialized staff person. So how do we make sure we pay them or at least take care, you know, how do we make sure we recognize them? Yeah. They want to say pay, but it's like, how do we recognize them for what they are rather than calling people like unskilled? Totally. And that unskilled thing is such a, it's so interesting to me because I think practically most people would say, well, to be in the helping profession, you should, you should have some kind of like background. Yeah. Some kind of background and some kind of like skill with it. I, I think that's a reasonable thing uh, thing to expect especially with the uh, the delicacy of the work and like how crucial it is to like really be able to be with people and properly support them on the flip side you know i i think to things of like let's say what people might call skilled right like people with master's degrees or phds it's like i'm sure in your life and i'm not asking you to comment on yeah. this you've probably met a lot of people who have advanced degrees where you're like oh yeah oh, <laughs> oh yeah i mean where i'm like we're just you know i've met plenty of people who have who have no degree who I would want taking care of my loved one more than I would want this other person who has a, a doctorate or whatever, right? Like we know these things to be true yeah. because there's something to the to the person behind it and their empathy and their compassion and their way of being mm -hmm. that probably that doesn't necessarily you don't get that necessarily from just having gone to school. Like that it's part of it's who you are. Yeah. So it's like it's a hundred percent true that I've Certainly, and we've all met, you know, clinicians or doctors that you've gone to a doctor's office. You're like, I never want to see that person <laughs> totally again, bad. right? And that's and that's that's totally understandable, right? I mean, I could, uh, you know, there was a neurologist I once saw with my dad, you know, and you know, uh, for the my dad uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, a while back and then passed away a few years ago. But the first neurology appointment I ever went to with him. I had this list of questions. I'd come with like 
you know, cause they tell you, it's like, Hey, for the doctor, cause they're gonna be busy. Make sure you have your questions before you get in. Mm -hmm. I had them listed out. I was ready to go. We finished the visit and I started asking my questions. He's like, okay, we're out of time. I was like, no, we have, we have four more minutes and I just want to get through these. Can I email him to you? And he said, he held his hand up and he said, your dad has Alzheimer's. You need to get over it. Or no, you need to get used to it. Sorry. So you need to get used to it. Yeah. And I was like, this is the last time I will ever see you in my life. Yeah. I looked at him and just said, like, this is the last time we'll ever see you again. Did you say that? Yeah. I said it to him out loud right yeah. there. And my mom looked at me like, did you just make an executive decision for the family? I was like, yeah. this guy can't take care of dad. And how did he respond? He just looked at me like he was shocked that I would speak to him that way. And then yeah. he walked out. And I, was, and I went and found a, a better neurologist with a better, you know, uh, bedside manner who yeah. understood, who was kind, who really worked with my dad. And was kind of part of his neurology team up to the last few years of his life when he transferred to another care team. But it was just like, you know, the ability to advocate for myself and my family is not something that everyone feels like. A lot of the folks who come in through don't feel like they can say that to you, right? Yeah. Like, they don't feel like they can say, like, hey, that clinician was actually a jerk. Right. I want to file a grievance, right? Or yeah. I want to file a complaint. So we try to make sure that people know that they can do that. Mm -hmm. But I know that, I mean, I felt empowered given my experience, my position in the world, the relative mm -hmm. privilege I have, mm -hmm. the guy who's in grad school has a clinical degree. Mm -hmm. They'd be like, whoa, that's not how you talk. Like, right. that's not how you talk to me. That's not how you talk to my dad. This, we all we all deserve a level of respect here. Yeah. Well, and to go to that, not just in, in this field, but I feel like the, the idea of education, of mm -hmm. course, like, of course, education can matter and it can be helpful. But I think that I firmly in my heart of hearts believe that there are so many unbelievably talented, wise people that could be working in all sorts of industries and mm -hmm. making a massive difference yep. with degree or no degree. Yep. And if I think of creating services that are low to zero barrier, I think that entry into areas where they can, where people can uh, be in the helping industry and get paid a fair wage should have low to zero barrier. It doesn't mean that there's like, we're just going to hire anyone who walks in sure. off the street. Of course, there'd be normal hiring practices. I, be, I do believe fully that most people can help in many, many, many ways. And then if you kind of go up the scale of complexity, that's where you look for different things. Yeah. But even then, that doesn't necessarily mean formal education. I really believe like a reworking of how we approach problems means that we have to have a reworking of how we like, of what kind of barriers we have to who gets, who gets to be involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, previously, I worked in a site where, in a, in a, we oversaw a program uh, in a previous role that was the 24 hour behavioral health kind of crisis line for a county. And it was an access line. So you could just call and say, I need to, want to set an appointment up or whatever, but it could also serve as kind of the bridge to a crisis. Mm -hmm. And there was a, it was a manager, it was a manager of the program. Mm -hmm. Great. And he said, you know, can we think outside the box a bit about who we hire? And I said, well, what are you thinking? He said, why don't we go down to the Starbucks that's by the state capitol and like just recruit all the baristas? He's like, because they're dealing with Congress people and their aides and, you know, a mass order from the governor's office or whatever. And like, they're just handling it. And who can handle an angry or an upset phone call better than that? The baristas that are down there that can actually, that are able to still keep a customer service face, keep a bright outlook while de dealing with like, oh, this is supposed to be non-fat, not low fat or whatever, right? Like, yeah. and I was like, that is a great outlook into like where how we could recruit different kinds of people into this work yeah. and create new access pathways because mm -hmm. uh, pulling folks from the service industry or 
kind of all over the place to find a way. And so, I mean, you're okay. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is looking at the skills we've learned from the people get from other places they can apply to the work they do now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's hilarious that I, I worked at Starbucks when I was in college. Yeah. And uh, I've been yelled at by many upscale people because there's a Starbucks and like a chapter's in a nice part of Vancouver. Yeah. And I can't even tell you the amount of times I had people yelling and screaming at me. And some part of me yeah. was like, this is just coffee. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, sure, totally, yeah. You need to relax. Yeah. But also being able to manage that certainly played into my, my career at some point. Yeah, yeah. All right, but let's go over to the burnout side. Yeah. Um, as we know, in all industries, burnout, of course, is, a, is an issue, or I'd say most industries. Yeah. And during the pandemic, uh, burnout, which is something that, of course, most professionals have some interaction with in their life, uh, people were seeing historic amounts of, uh, or industries were seeing a historic amount of people experiencing burnout, and not just mild burnout, but moderate burnout or even severe burnout. Yeah. If we go to the, to the helping industry, typically there's a lot of burnout or people experience a lot of burnout because there's such an amount of emotional labor, the work can be really intense. Some people have had to work two, three jobs to be able to do it. As a leader, how do you help your organization stay healthy? And one thing I push is like, like I said earlier, use mm -hmm. your PTO. Mm -hmm. I was like, we give you days off. When you're not here, I don't expect an email from you. I don't expect you to pick up your phone. I don't expect you to respond. I don't want you to think about work. Okay, this is actually your time. Yeah. This is your time to not be here. And then I try to model it. So for example, I was on vacation last week mm -hmm. for a whole week. And I told everybody on Monday morning, I'm available through Sunday, like if you need something. Monday morning, when I start driving, I'm going to log out of Teams. When I get there, I'm going to log out of email. I think that's the order. So at that point, the only way you'll be able to get hold of me is by calling my actual phone number. So if you need me for an emergency, if something serious happens, I do want to know about it because I'm responsible for it. Um, but I'm, I'm purposefully going to take myself off most of these comms for, mm -hmm. a few, for a week so that I'm not responsive, so I can kind of work to show you that this is what being on PTO. So many folks in, the, in our industry uh, historically have felt like their PTO is their I'm kind of still here time, yeah. right? Like, I'm on PTO, but I'm not really on PTO. But you know, if you need to get a hold of me, call this number, and I do that too. Yeah. Right? Like it's a, it's not a perf it's not perfect. Right? I'll tell people, like you know, I'm gonna be off, but if you need to get a hold of me, you can call, whatever. But like really trying to model that for folks is one thing, right? Yeah. To say, I'm not gonna be here. I'm really not gonna be here. Yeah. And so, um, and I want you to not be here when you're not here. Mm -hmm. And I want you to tell the staff, they're not here when they're not here. And then another thing is just like noticing when people write an email, like, oh, you wrote a bunch of emails at 8 p.m. Like, you know, all well. And then some of that's flex. I tell people, you know, if you, you know, part of managing burnout is to create a, a workplace people want to be in. So I tell people, you know, and this goes a bit into my own life and, you know, how I got to this work. But uh, if your kid has a soccer practice, I don't want you to miss it. Mm -hmm. So I want you to go to the practice. And so if you need to leave a half hour early, and we can make it work. It's not going to be every single time, but if we can make it work, go to soccer practice. And this is for leadership specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you want to respond to emails for a you know, half hour later to make it up, that's fine. Like you can flex that. I want to make sure that you feel like you're not missing out on your life to yeah. be at work and that your work isn't your life. Yeah. Right. And that's important to me. It's important to setting a culture that's supportive of staff and that keeps people wanting to work. Right. You know, I don't miss. I try not to miss anything for that same reason. I'm like, I'm going to be here. You can get a hold of me. 
and then they might see some work later and they may not. They may be that it, ma it balances out over the, the course of the week, right? But to make sure people know that, you know, when you're coming on board, uh, when you're coming on board to work for me and work for us as an agency, like we're, we believe in that, like truly. What about when taking time off or flex time is not enough? I mean, we, you know, we like a lot of uh, systems here, we have EAP, which is like a, you know, an employee assistance program. And we also provide staff just support. Like, what do you, what's going on? Like, do you need some help? Do you need some unpaid time? What can we do? What, what's, you know, what is, uh, what do you want to share with us? Because, I mean, ultimately you run into a situation where I might be a therapist, but I'm not my staff's therapist, mm -hmm. right? I'm their boss. Yeah. And so. I have to set a firm boundary there to say, like, I can offer a certain degree of support, and then I need, to, I need you to access the resources that we actually have for you that are appropriate to that, because there's a, there's a boundary issue here about how much we dive into. I'm very topic if you're just like, I'm having a hard time, or this workload, or da da, or, you know, I've got, my mom is sick, and I need to just, I'm at, it's been a lot of stress, and like, that's fine. But if you need to dive in, this isn't the space to do it, right? This is the, that would kind of cross to me some of the lines that I'd like to set with our relationship, but we have resources that we can, can that are internal and that are by us, but that are confidential that you can work with around that and push that to the staff. I occasionally will just resend that information out or we do it annually just to say, remind everybody you have these resources to you. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like this is a this is available, you know, and you're and you know, I think that's helpful to staff just to normalize and kind of create a culture of like Okay, use the stuff there for you. Yeah, you're you're touching on something though, and I, I appreciate your caution with how you're speaking about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna voice something though that no matter what your job is, self care is mm -hmm. your responsibility. Yeah, and where I believe employers need to do the work is need, employers need to create a healthy workplace. Yeah, strong culture, strong and healthy accessible resources. Um, create situations where people can flex. Yep. You know, you help people make sure they take their time off. You you create that space. Um, let's say an industry outside of the working of the of the helping industry. I always tell people, I'm like, hey, you're not your team's therapist. Yeah. And these people are actually literally not therapists. Right, so yeah, it's yeah. like, but and in, and then in the helping industry, it's like you're all therapists, but you're not your team's yeah. therapist. Yep. There is an amount of accountability, no matter what your industry is, but especially if it's the helping industry of self-care. And it's just the same, like taking care of your diet. And when yep. I say diet, I don't mean like when I'm talking about like body image sure, or yeah, that, but just eating, eating well. yeah, fueling yourself yeah. properly, um, paying your bills, yep. you know, physically taking, your, taking care of yourself, mentally taking care of yourself. Self-care is your responsibility and the responsibility of you and your partner, if you don't, or if you have a partner or don't yeah. have a partner or your family. And I think it's really important for employers, no matter what your industry is, is to make sure you've got your side of the street set up. Yep. But you've got to be met by the side, by the people that you're leading. Well, because you can't, I can't tell you what your, how you want to take care of yourself. Totally. Right? Like, I, I can't prescribe you the right way to do something. Like, if everyone followed the Harjeet plan, it would be like, all right, so we're going to meet up at 530 mm -hmm. at the track. Mm -hmm. And we're going to run a one mile, a two mile warm up, and then we're going to do seven times 200 by 200. That's a 200 meter sprint and a 200 meter recovery. And people would look and be like, 5:30 in the morning? Like, <laughs> what? no, I'm not coming, right? And so it's like, oh, why are you punishing? Yeah, us? why are you making me run laps? 
Like, you know, it's like a high school thing, right? Like, why do I have to run laps? What did I do wrong? Totally. It's like, that's not their version of it, right? They're, they might do something totally different. Um, but to me, like, it's that or it's swinging a kettlebell or mm-hmm. uh, or hanging out with my kids or whatever, right? So it's like, if you've got to, I can't tell you what's going to work for you. But you have to figure that out for you. But I can create, I can take, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can take care of this side. Just say, I want to create opportunities to make sure you have the time off, make sure you have the ability to, t- to do these things. Mm-hmm. And then it's, then it's uh, for you to figure out what that is. You know, it might be camping, it could be boat, you know, hiking, whatever it is. That's your, that's yours, right? The reason I'm bringing this up is in the most leaders want to be good leaders and they want to help people and they want people on their teams to feel good and enjoy their work. And that work could be like helping people and it could be making paper bags. Like it's, I want people to feel good about working here and feel taken care of. But if people want to do good work, they want to do great work. If they want to do something that is meaningful either to them or to the world or, or even just make a good living wage, it starts with your responsibility to take care of yourself. And I think this is like one of the most important conversations uh, that, that I think the work world needs to have because there's always a lot of kind of like conversation of like, well, what can we do for, yeah. for culture and this and that? It's like, yeah, we can do all these things. If someone's not taking their time off, we cannot literally make them take time yeah. off. Yeah. If someone is not minding their diet or they, they can't sleep at night and they're not taking the steps to help them sleep, like to figure out what's going on for them yeah. and to, to, to address that, we can't make them do that. And that doesn't make someone a bad employer. No. It doesn't make the industry a bad industry. It's that we can only take care of what we can take care of and then create the situations where the, the tools are there if people want to pick them up. Yeah. Self-care, I think, not think, no, in my heart, is the most important thing to people being able to be productive and happy. And self-care does matter, but employers are only responsible for one side of that street. For creating the conditions for it. Totally, yeah. man. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I, to me, it's just like anytime someone, I'm always like, do you want to come at five? You, we can run laps. And it's like, nope. And it's like, okay. Well, then <laughs> I, cannot, I will authorize the PTO. Totally. And you do your thing, right? And like, I don't know what that is. And you don't have to tell me what that is because I don't need to know what that is, right? Totally. It's the same way that like I know people go out, et cetera, and they don't invite the bosses. Like, that's, yeah. that's good. That's fine. Like, totally. do your thing. Like, I'm, I'm happy that you're doing what you need to do for yourself. Like, my thing is this, and it doesn't have to be your thing. My thing is that plus eating at vegan restaurants and trying non-alcoholic cocktails because totally. I, like, that's what I'm enjoying these days totally. as a way of like taking care of myself. And that's, that's great. Yeah. That's all fun. Uh, so let's talk about you though, since you mentioned the, uh, the Harjeet way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I chuckle a bit cause we've known each other for so, so long. And of course we've seen each other like evolve and grow Yeah. in my mind. You're still like, I think we met like we were both in our early 20s. I think I remember the moment we met. If you'll grant me this. Yeah. Kyle Whitlow's house in Concord Champion Embrace the End Tour. Embrace Today. Embrace Today. Sorry, Embrace uh-huh. Today. Uh-huh. Embrace the End is Pat, who you had on a previous podcast, Ben. Shout out to uh, Pat. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite interviews. Uh, so uh, Embrace Today Champion. Uh-huh. I came down with Tyler Shannon, who had recently moved back from the Northwest, and we uh-huh. crashed at Kyle's house, and my hair was probably... Sh- chin length, awkward uh, at that house. But that was the first time I actually ever talked to you. And we, we hit it off right away. Yeah, yeah, we we yeah. came buddies right yeah, away. Yeah. Um, I, I will agree with that. Yeah, I think, um, that, I think that's true. Shout out to Kyle Whitlow. 
Yeah. Um, that guy created such a special thing that changed so many people's lives with the record label. And, and Zach, who also helped him start yeah. the record label, but wasn't always uh, a part of it. Um, shout out to him, man, because I, I, you know, I think of Rivalry Records and I don't, I don't know how remembered it is, but yeah. like what well, a special label and special time. Those dudes are from my hometown. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like we all grew. They went to the high school two years ahead of me, so that set the stage. Like I think Zach's the one who got me into Straight Edge. Yeah. Um, and so that's like those. I don't keep in touch with them very much, but I mean, I they're always in my heart because mm -hmm. I'm like that got me on this path that I've been on since then. Yeah, both both uh, great guys. You know, I was thinking this is a, a sidebar, but I was thinking about Rivalry Records, obviously here in the Bay Area, yeah. and like. There are these just pockets of time where people do these things that at the moment, it, it's not like you're thinking about forever, but yeah. it seems like a forever thing, right? It's like yeah. you look at a wall, like you're not thinking that wall is going to be torn down someday. Right. It's just a wall, yeah, right? Yeah. You think of rivalry records and what Kyle, Zach to a degree, and then Kyle later on continued to do. It was huge, man. It was yeah. groundbreaking. I mean, the I, groundbreaking might be too well, big, the, but it felt it felt monumental to me. Well, and I know I've never said this to Kyle, so if it doesn't end up on the pod, I can send him the you can send him the snippet. The fact to us that it's that they are that Kyle and Zach are from the same town of I think it's twenty eight thousand people or something as mm -hmm. me in northern Northern California, rural California, mm -hmm. is like this was this huge badge of pride to yeah. myself and a few other friends who were from there were like. We get to rep this like this is from our tiny unknown backwater you know like town these guys started this awesome thing and mm -hmm. put out these great bands you know and so it was just it was it was amazing to me to be on the periphery of just to be proud of kind of a local product totally and there's two things i i, I learned um from kyle specifically uh, that i've applied to my life uh, one was kyle ran rivalry like an actual business mm -hmm. sure and I remember, and I've told him this, like there were points where I remember feeling like a little like, oh, like, who is this? Why is he being out? Like, I was like, I was young, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you're like. I, actually, let me just say this. I'm, because I don't think young people necessarily think this. I was, my thinking at the time was a bit juvenile where I yeah. was like, oh, it's like, it's not punk to run it like this. But it's like, the dude had spreadsheets yeah. and like had like royalty statements yeah. and stuff. And like, you would have contracts and it'd be like, I was used to handshakes and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But of course, as I got older, I'm like, oh, that was the smartest fucking thing. Like that guy was so ahead of the game because yep. it's like he ran a very well, uh, a well-oiled machine that was an actual business that treated everybody super fair. Yep. He was just adult enough to do that. Yeah. And he's younger than me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, I think he was a valedictorian of his high school class. Um, I, was, I remember watching him give his speech so it's like, I mean, that guy always, uh, I mean, it, you know, he was two years ahead of me or three years ahead of me. And so it was just, you know, Tyler was three years and Kyle was two years ahead of us, but it was, they were special dudes on campus. And so, you know, shout out to those guys. Well, just the idea that it's like, no matter what you're doing, yeah. you should run it well, like yeah. thoughtfully. So that's the first thing I learned from, from yeah. Kyle. But when he shut down rivalry um, and was like, yeah, the labels, the labels done. Yeah. You know, at that point, I was such a believer, and I really like Kyle's just such a smart guy, and and has done gone on to do other great things. But it's like where he's like, yeah, I just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And I again at the time, I was kind of like, 
whoa, like I almost felt like, can you do that? Like, yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> just like shut something down. Yeah. And he shut it down. And it's the graceful wrap up. You choose your own ending. You wrap it up when you want. And I've applied that to things that I've done. I applied it to my, to my own record label that I did later on. But I have applied it to things where it's like, hey, you know, just because you're doing something doesn't mean you you're, uh, have to do it forever, yeah. especially if you don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And that graceful picking your own exit and just being really thought, thoughtful about it was so cool. So shout out to Kyle. Uh, I just think he's such a, a great guy and Rivalry Records is such a cool label. I, totally. Yeah, it, it's, it's always in my heart. It's like an interesting, awesome moment. And I appreciate the same thing. Like the example to set, like it's okay to walk away from this whenever you want. Yeah. It's like, oh, I don't have to, I, don't, I can come and go as I need. Yeah. Like I'm not bound to being here forever if I don't want to be right now. So I know I was like, let's talk about yeah, you. Yeah. And then I instantly started talking about no, someone but, else. No, let, but let's related, go to you. yeah. All right. So you came up uh, in punk and hardcore. Yep. Yeah. I what straight edge at 18, vegetarian at 18, vegan at 19. Mm -hmm. So I've just turned 40. So, you know, a long time, most of my life now. Mm -hmm. Came up in punk and hardcore, like I said, in rural Northern California. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was born actually in the Bay Area, but moved up there when I was nine. It was my dad's work and got into, I mean, I think, you know, I didn't grow up with American music. My parents had just gotten here. So it was very like, you know, uh, regret. It was very kind of, you know, it was not standard that anybody in my family like picked up a guitar. Yeah. And so I bought a guitar. I wasn't allowed to play it upstairs in the house. I had to play it in the garage. And we'd just sit down there and like learn from lessons and then teaching myself how to play guitar. Poorly, still to this day, but like learning how to play an instrument. Um, and then, yeah, I just got, in, got into punk and hardcore. And I think the lessons from that have just been, the lessons I learned from punk, hardcore, uh, and activism have just been like a huge part. I think they're an underappreciated part of like how I learned the skills I did for my career, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's, it's interesting, like, you know, if you're booking or working with a friend, you know, you know this, like from booking a tour, mm -hmm. you're booking your tour, that's scheduling, that's budgeting, there's a lot of skills that you inherently learn by doing that, right? And uh, for me, it's like, oh, we're, we're having a meeting to plan a protest against the Iraq war. Okay, well, how much money does the, does the association have on campus? Uh, can we rent a bus? Can we not rent a bus? Like, how much are the signs going to cost? Like, the budgeting that goes into that, right? The organizing people, the consensus building, like, oh, these people disagree. Like, how do we get to some commonality? Mm -hmm. And so there's a therapist who used to have an office just on the street from here, and uh, Passed away a few years ago. One thing he told me when I was, you know, all the all the people who kind of are from the subcultures that I see who want to be clinicians and therapists, and they really want to go out there and they really want to help people. Uh, they come in here, and and he wasn't mocking. He was just like, you know, they come in and they get these jobs, and within like six months, somebody realizes they have all these skills that like most people in the building don't have. Like they're like, oh, I can take care of the scheduling or the, you know, in a meeting, they're facil they end up t facilitating. Mm -hmm. And within like a year, they're a supervisor and a few years later, because what you've learned are kind of leadership management skills. Mm -hmm. uh, and some are leadership, some are some overlap, right? Mm -hmm. But the skill set just kind of exists in your, in the back of your brain from the work, from just like the life you've li lived. Mm -hmm. And so you, you know, you came with that. I have that kind of, I think all the time about like, oh, the first time I just volunteered to organize the you know the staff meeting and set the agenda and all that like where did that come from like oh from years of doing that on campus for political groups or whatever yeah. um you know how do i 
how did you did I learn about conflict resolution? It's like oh, by hanging out with a bunch of punks and figuring out how to, you know, just how to make peace about arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's that's just part of my life that I really value, and I'm less involved in punk and hardcore at this point in my life with my kids, et cetera. But I feel like the I had some association with, it and I'll never lose that because it's just it's in my soul. Yeah, um, I I remember the first time I. I held a minor threat seven inch yeah. and the co- the uh, cover had come unglued at the side and someone had written flex your head yeah. just in there. And I was like, oh, this wasn't manufactured by some someone. Some kids just made yeah. these. And then, of course, the whole story, they figured out how to do that. Yeah. Um, punk and hardcore set me up to live to live life yeah. practically. That idea that you could almost just do anything yourself and make something cool about yep. it. And maybe it won't be appreciated by thousands of people, but it could certainly be appreciated by like 10 people or 12 yep. people or 30 people. That was like life-changing for me. Totally. I have applied almost everything I learned from punk, the both the good and the bad, to my marriage, yeah. the way I am in the community, the way I've built a business, the way I've done my career, um, the way I interact with myself and kind of like work on my own problems. It it is one of the most vital scenes. It can also be stymieing, though, mm-hmm. um, where it can almost feel a little claustrophobic. Yeah, I mean, that's where, like we were talking about, being able to come in and out of it as you need. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like there have been moments where it's like, okay, you know, I, I'm a grad student, I'm a social worker, I have these other things I'm doing. This isn't my whole life the way it was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. This is a part of my life. And right now I don't have time for this part of my life. And that's okay. Yeah. Like I'm gonna I'll be back when I if something interests me or if I want to come to a show or do something, I'll be back here and I will not know your songs, but I'll certainly sing along to the cover that you do of a band I love like Chain of Strength. Mm-hmm. Um I'll definitely be here for that part. But mm-hmm. otherwise I think it's okay to come in and out, but the lesson from it, right, isn't lost. Like who, what it gave you and what it gave me isn't going anywhere, right? It's there. Mm-hmm. And so I've rejected and pushed back against the, the kind of, not conservative in a political sense, but just in the closed, net, the closed kind of net of it, right? Yeah. Just like, this is what this community is. It's like that, that there's support in there. There's culture there. There's art and music and friends and community. And also that can get tighter and tighter and you may need to step out of that for other interests you take on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's cool when you find people from that community doing other things you love. Like you and I both are followers of this, you know, it's just a Strava group, but the Straight Edge Run Club is a lot of fun for me. Yeah. I'm like, oh, other people who are straight edge who run a lot. Like this is just Nice to know that they, that exists. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't mean we're going to go to a show and have a meetup or whatever, but it's just nice to know that exists, right? Yeah. Or when you see somebody from the same world out in the, from our world, uh, in the real world, like, yeah. <laughs> like in the water, <laughs> totally, and totally. you're like, I'm like, oh, I see you. Like, I see you. I saw yeah. that tattoo. I see the X on that you just, when you lifted your arm up, I was like, oh, I saw it just for a second, but I, I saw that tattoo. Cool, cool. I'll totally. catch up with you later. Totally. Um, right. But I think it's cool to see that feed into other people's lives and like them bringing that. I also think like the styming is also like DIY can be styming sometimes because then you don't ask what you actually need. So it's like, oh, I can do this with like $8 and a box of glue. It's like, no, 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 no. You need $4,000. You need 15 plus 
four thousand dollars a startup plus this plus this plus a start, plus a uh, a clinician plus like no 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 don't try to do something cheap yeah. like push for what you actually need so I think it's a little of both like I I feel like sometimes my DIYness can be a can be a inhibitor if I I have a check for it I'm like wait am I being cheap yeah like, wait don't be cheap like think about what you actually need to get this done totally and uh, so I'll add to that because that's a great a great addition but the I'd say the thing that I'd say from a career a career space that I had to learn is like oh like people outside punk and hardcore could be very knowledgeable and know how to do a lot of cool things. Yeah. And you don't, I would say early career, I, I treated my job as like, I'm going to go in and do this good job. And I've got this kind of like special way of doing it. Cause I'm a punk, yeah. you know, like almost this chip on my shoulder, sure. which I think any healthy punk should have like, yeah, you know, have a chip yeah. on your shoulder a little you're, bit. You're bringing this. Yeah. Totally. But also something that I really came to appreciate is like how, rich of a world it is mm -hmm. and how like there are so many people who've literally never heard of chain of strength or yep. whatever that could <laughs> run circles around me as a professional yeah and to some people that might seem rudimentary even like people growing up in the punk scene but there can be this stymieing like we we're we're outsiders and we've got it figured out and we don't need anyone else yeah. where it's like i don't necessarily need everyone else but damn i want to know i want access i want to be a part of that yeah I want to know the best way to do something. Yes, it's like, totally. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to know the best way that we've come up with. I want to know the actual best way. Yeah. It's like, tell me the best way to do this thing. And if it comes from what we know, like as a community, whether it's from punk or from, you know, the running community or whatever, like whatever the best way of doing something is the one that I'm interested in and the most fun. Yeah. Like give me, if it's a recreational thing, like give me the, give me the best and give me the most fun. And then I'll just kind of find and figure out how I want to do this. Right. Yeah. The one that make, that speaks to me. But totally, like it's a, it'll be like, well, we have an answer to this solution. Like, well, no, no, this solution's actually cooler, better. We should try it out. Like, I think it's a better idea. And it's like it gets gets a bit of pushback, right? And I think it it can be, and that's part of what I, I feel like I need, I need to step away from sometimes. It's like, oh, no, I, I've learned other ways of doing some of these things that don't require me to, to adhere to something that I don't believe in anymore. No and way. so I mean, that allows me to step away from this for a minute, right? Um, and, and that's great. Like, it's fine. And then if I come back to it and people are interested, I can talk to them about what I'm thinking about. So growing up, yeah, kind of Northern California, out there yeah. a little bit, with a family who were first-generation genera immigrants. Yeah. And so this is, uh, I grew up in the same way. I was in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, my parents were both immigrants. And so I was the first generation that was born in Canada. Even my sister hadn't been born in Canada. Okay, yeah. Um, the experience I was having as a young person growing up in North America was radically different to what they'd experienced. Totally. And it caused a lot of drift in our home, especially when I got into punk and hardcore. Any, <laughs> I was like, what was it like for you? I mean, it's, I'm laughing because it's like, this is like, my, my mom still talks about this uh, all the time, like how much of a headache I caused. And I'm like, <laughs> well, it was a headache because you chose to make partial part. I'm like, own your, and you know, it's a, own your part of this. It was a headache because there was an unnatural, unnecessary barrier set. Like I'm going to a friend's house to listen to, to records. I will be by back. His parents are here. No, it's like, well, why are you? Why are we causing unnecessary? Like putting up an unnecessary barrier, right? Because then, as a punk, I'm going to rebel against it, and now we're going to have a fight about it, yeah. right? Um, so I mean, similar. Like I think my, you know, I think my parents would have loved if I came home, did my homework, helped at the house, and then sat and looked at the wall for the three hours till bedtime. But it's like same thing. And occasionally, I would just say. You moved to California, so if you wanted me to act like I was living in a village, 
that you were raised in, you should have raised me in the village that you came from. Yeah, yeah. But you moved me to Northern California, and I have MTV, and I have a record store about a half hour away, and there's a college 45 minutes away that has all kinds of stuff, and there's books and art and music and different kinds of people, even in this relatively insular, predominantly white, smaller town. Mm -hmm. But there's just different people, and it's interesting, and I'm a curious person. I'm going to go explore all this. And then it was just chaos and conflict for you know years and then some homeostasis later right and i think it's just that's the 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 natural flow of these things and it's like my brother and sister and i talk about this a lot like you really like broke a bunch of things down and just said no and did what you wanted and so then when we came up with like can i go to the movies it was like yeah sure <laughs> like you know it's like it's like yeah fine whatever i give up like she's like our stuff became a lot easier because you just were like willing to be the battering ram. I was like, yeah, that was my role, right? That's the oldest. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll be the battering ram. I'll like, I will go to a show and get back at 2 a.m. so that you can go to a movie till 9 p.m. Yeah. Like, I will, I will push the barrier for you. You took the hits, man. Yeah, I took the hits. And I was like, it was fine. And it was funny because by the, the end of it, like my mom now, like, you know, knows all these straight edge people who come to her, like vegans who've showed up at her house. She always has like vegan Punjabi food, right? She's super cool with everybody. She knows. And I was like, I used to hate like everybody I hung out with. And she's like, she's like, well, it just took time to understand like the, you know, she's like, you gotta understand it was hard for us. We just got here. Yeah. We were like used to everyone looking and behaving a certain way and being from a certain community. And you have, we have family who are all in the Bay area and they're all super tight knit. And we moved four hours away. We had nobody up here. So for us, it was like, what's going to happen? Like is something bad's going to happen because he's not hanging out with our, with people from our community. And really, I was like, I was just being a normal, boring, generic high school kid, yeah. right? Like, it's just like, that's just acculturation. That's just life. That's the, you know, the if we get into all the HBSE, kind of like the human behavior and the social environment, like timeline stuff from grad school, it's like, this is just generic high school movie. Yeah. Um, but in our world, in my instance, it was punk and then later straight edge punk and straight edge hardcore. Mm -hmm. um, but by the end, it was like, you know, uh, Gosh, my, when my parents were living in in Washington for that few years up there, there was a time where I caught a ride with the dudes from Requiem, which is the post catharsis band. So this is Crust, yeah. And uh, they they were giving me, they were dropping me off at the Bellingham Food Co-op, and uh, I was like, "Mom, I'm here. If you want to pick me up," she's like, "Oh, just invite them over." I was like, "These people haven't showered in weeks. Are you sure you?" And she's like, "Yeah, that's fine." And I was like, "They, they left. Like, don't worry about it." I was like, "But." In what world are you suddenly okay with cross <laughs> in your house? Like, who haven't showered and God knows, and you know, and, and not to slight, I mean, maybe they, but these were, you know, this is that crowd, a crowd mm -hmm. of folks who are way more cross-punk. And mm -hmm. I was like, this is not your usual cup of tea. For people listening who don't know what cross-punk is, yeah. we're not even going to go into it. We're not going to go into that. Go Google that. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> Google. I, you know, Brian might reject the label of cross-punk, but it's just fine. But, you know, the, there's a lot there. It's like, um, but I think it definitely, and it still comes up, like we, it still comes up in conversation. I think there is residual trauma for her mm -hmm. around that. Like she'll bring it up to my wife. My wife will just say like, man, my wife was amazing and beautiful and wonderful. We'll just be like, man, that car out of your mom. Like really, she's still processing some of the, the stuff that you all went through together. And I'm like, no, we don't, it doesn't come up to me, mm -hmm. right? And we don't have these moments to break it down, but I think it was important to, like individuate and be who I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. But um, with that though, because you'd mentioned uh, your dad yeah. had um, 
he had developed Alzheimer's and then and then uh, had passed away. And as you know, and as we've talked about, you know, my dad lives with dementia. Yeah. And so you know, coming up in this like, like screw you, dad, I'm a punk. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. And and also like I, I know our experiences were a bit different, but my father was was home a lot because yeah. my mom was the breadwinner. Yeah. But my mom. Uh, was out working and she there's a bunch of challenges that were involved with that like my mom did all the working we're, we're in a recession my dad uh, was the, the the homekeeper and I spent a lot of time with my dad but my dad was um, you know a real typical Armenian kind of guy is very yeah. like closed off emotionally like lo lo lovely guy like yeah. really giving but he didn't talk a lot it was I was always around my dad, but I was like, he was there for every game and everything, yeah. but like, we didn't have like some deep, like father son yeah. thing. Right. And then getting into punk and hardcore, the last thing you want to do is be with your parents, Yep, yep. you know? And, uh, really when I started becoming aware of like kind of life and death and all those yeah. things, and you kind of become a little bit more aware of, of, of the, the finite nature of things. Um, it, I don't want to say it was too late, but I, I think I, I just never got the chance to really have like I'd say, a bit of a deeper uh, relationship with my dad. Um, now my mom lives with me. Yeah. Uh, and so I have maybe too deep of. A <laughs> <laughs> we're sure. We're in yeah. each other's grills constantly, but uh, it's. There's days where I'm like, fuck, man, like. I did so much stuff. I got to travel over the world yeah. with punk. I got to do all these things. But like growing up the first generation, the, the first generation immigrants and, and going your own way, yeah. I, I just feel like, man, maybe it would have been cool to grow up in that little village yeah, and yeah. to have that, have that time and have that kind of relationship. I think about that a little, I mean, I had a, my dad was kind of the opposite. My mom was home until I was in high school, then she went to work. But my dad was gone. He was a machinist, and so he was gone 12 hours a lot of times. And so he missed tons of games, tons of, you know, he missed a lot. Yeah. And um, and similar, like, you know, not a lot of feeling, not a lot of emotion for a long time. Um, and I think it was, it's been tough, especially by the time. You know, and then it was like I moved away, went to college, lost years where it's like, you know, moved to grad school, moved to the Bay Area four hours away, and then they moved to Washington. There's all these things that life happens, right? Yeah. And life happened in the middle there. And then there was a diagnosis. And then it was like, well, shit, what part, you know, what do we do now, right? Yeah. Like, what do we do about uh, the finality of the time we have left? Now that we know this thing is happening, how do we maximize our time? And, you know, when I talk about stepping away from per certain aspects of my life, Really, like this was a huge impetus for that. It was a uh, okay, like I need to probably, you know, I grow up a bit. Mm -hmm. Like okay, it's time to stop like hanging out at shows all weekend and working a bit here and there, and, like doing whatever. It's like okay, finish grad school, get my master's, get a like a count like a stable paying you know professional job, mm -hmm. and be around to help out if they need something. Right, like if uh, my mom needs me to go. With my, I'm gonna be able to go to doctor's appointments with my dad and whatever else. And like, I have to give up some stuff I like, otherwise, like, I'll do that, right? So I can be here. And still, like, the, you know, the guilt of like, oh, I should have been there for more is brutal, right? Like, I don't know my dad's favorite color, don't know his favorite food, don't know, you know, I know like he was, a, I know his sports teams because we talked about that a lot. But like, there's a lot I wish I could have known about him that, like, at this point, I will never know. Yeah.
and like it influences the way I parent mm -hmm. uh, dramatically. I think you know a lot of therapists are like we're just a reaction to our parents, right? So it's like it's a total just like okay, what did you get? And you're probably going to do something close to the I mean not the exact opposite, but something with an opposite reaction, right? Um, and so to me, it's like okay. Part of my work is making is making sure I can be at soccer practice. I can be there at every game. I can, you know, uh, do pick up and drop off whenever you know we need to to try and literally be be the fifty percent parent and like not just the fit like the hundred percent breadwinner and the it's like I think I want to be here half at least half the time. Like this is important to me. Yeah. Like I want to make every like I had to miss one of his soccer games because I had a half marathon. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. I had scheduled this before your schedule came out. And I was like, so I'm going to miss the game, but I'll be here right after, and I want to hear all about it, mm -hmm. right? And otherwise, like, I don't try to miss anything if I can. Yeah. Um, that's just important to me. Um, but I think, you know, that'll be, there's depth there about how, you know, how I, how that affects how I work and how I lead and how I tell other people to work yeah. also. It's like, okay, like, you know, you've got something going on. You should, you should figure out how to be present for that, like, and... I will create, the, we will create as much time as I can for that yeah. because that's important. Like that won't come back. Yeah. Like you won't, you won't get another chance at that one. So be there. I think a lot about, cause there's like, there's leadership. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I wasn't mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm going to be a leader. Sure. You yeah. know, you just, these things kind of find you. And, and sometimes maybe you want to be a leader, whatever it is. There's that kind of like awful moment where you're like, oh, like I guess like I'm the head of the family now. Yeah. Yeah. And awful because like what you said is like oh i guess i have to grow up yeah it's weird to say that like i was in like i was in my 40s when my dad was diagnosed and yeah. i was like i guess i have to grow up it's yeah. like by anyone's definition i'm a grown-up yeah yeah but it's that kind of punk thing keeps you a bit you yeah, know yeah. like in that space and um the idea i guess of leadership too of really being able to kind of like look at all of the awful stuff and just be like okay i'm gonna yeah. have to figure it out yeah yeah um so anyone who's had to care for their partner or for their parent or for their child, like yeah. in, in, in these, these situations where it's not going to get better and you have to deal with the, the awfulness of it and then also try and give the best quality of life. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is that like facing the wind rather than facing away from it. Like it's like, you've just got to look forward and, let it be what it's going to be and say like, okay, like I doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at the problem and I'm going to slowly but surely come up with a, the best plan I can for the problem. Right. Which is, okay, let's find a better neurologist. Let's see if there's any other specialists. Are there any medical trials that we can try? Whatever. Like, okay, what's the, what can we do to the house to make it more accessible and safe and comfortable? Like let's start intervening in all the ways we can to maximize this. Like, okay, we're canceling a lot of vacations so we can go see him more. Yeah. So you've talked about how that's impacted your parenting. Yeah. How did it impact your work as a leader, like within industry? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it influences that earlier conversation we had around PTO or time off or, you know, making sure people can take care of them, do the things they need to do outside of work, right? Yeah. Like if I had to work two jobs, I couldn't have been there for my dad, yeah. right? Um, and I couldn't have been there as uh, as much as I wanted to be anyways. Um, if we can create, you know, uh, I had a very understanding supervisor, manager, mm -hmm. director, I can't remember what her title was at the time, 
Um, she had all three of those, her manager and super and director by the time that we were together, but she was well aware of what was going on with my dad. And so I would just say like, I don't want to talk about it very much, but I need to go to this thing. You know, I'm going to be gone for, th you know, three hours. So I'll be back afterwards, but uh, I'll be, you know, I'll be here when I can. And I think, I, I think, you know, we're always trying to improve upon what we got. But, and so when now, and if someone come, if someone was to come to me and say the same thing, I'd say, and you don't have to come back in three hours. You can come back tomorrow. You don't have to be here today. You can go, right? Like you don't have to be here. It's not a big, the world will not end if you're not here right now because your brain's going to be there anyways. So like we're just balancing here how much you're here versus how much, how much you're here physically versus how much you're, you're here emotionally and psychologically and kind of presence wise. And so why don't you just take this time for yourself and then when you're ready, come on back. And, you know, we'll work together on that, like on a timeline. So talk to me. I think one of the more discouraging things was, you know, when uh, when he did die, one of my, somebody from where I used to work called me like two days later and about work. And I was like, hey, I'm a, my dad died. I'm on bereavement. And I was like, yeah, I just had one quick question. I was like, I was like, no, 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 no. We're not doing this, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not indulging this like work worker kind of like work is life conversation like i'm just sitting on the floor here i'm just doing my thing i'm laying on the floor i'm being sad like that's what i'm allowed to do right now and like this is my designated time off for that it isn't even like i'm flexing this like i'm not here as far as you're concerned so don't don't call me so i think it's it's giving people permission to 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 balance those things as they need to and supporting them through it well thanks for for going down that because i know it's it's something we share yeah. is, is that, and we've talked about it. And I think it's, uh, for anyone listening, I hope, I hope that uh, if that touched some part of you there, uh, that's good because it's a tough one. Yeah. And uh, there's lessons to learn for us like to reflect on, but also there's ways that can inform our approach to things. Uh, but let's, as we're heading towards the end of the conversation, let's, yeah. let's dial it up. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's bring have, that energy. Yeah, let's have some fun. Yeah. All right, so uh, the crucial three. Yeah, Three yeah. questions we're going to end with. They're tough. They're going to get harder as we go. I, I was preparing for the, I actually was running laps this morning preparing for the crucial. I was like, <laughs> oh, I got to have good answers for this part. All right. The first one's tough, man. Stepping into the breach of this kind of work. It, and I consider it stepping into the breach. Like someone has to step in. Yeah. Some people have to step into it to help. Yeah. Why you? It's a good question. Um, one, because I want to. Like, I think we want people to do work that they want to be doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, a long time ago, I had this professor who, and it's not a position I necessarily agree with, he said, all positions should just be paid the same, mm -hmm. system-wide. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I remember him writing on the board, and I was like, oh boy, we're going down, we're just, this is gonna be a whole, I was like, this is gonna be a whole class, right? Yeah. And his argument is like, and then people are like, why should a janitor make the same as a, as a neurologist or whatever, doctor? Uh -huh. And he's like, who do you want being a doctor? He's like, the person, and, I was, and it was like, the person who wants to be there. Right, and who do you want doing what they want to be doing? Because they want to be there. Because they'll do, they'll give themselves to it. Because they actually want to be doing this. Mm -hmm. You don't want people doing things just for financial gain. You want them to have some mission-driven or internal uh, focus that's propelling them to do that work. Mm -hmm. So one is I would say, because I care and I want to be here. This is like this, you know, this is another roll your eyes, uh, but it's like you know, it's a calling. It's it feels earnest and something I care about. Um, and it's always been, you know, uh, I mean, I can remember having arguments with my uncle about homelessness when I was 
I couldn't even drive a car yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's just like convert I was like I was reading about social issues and I became a sociology major and studied social problems, et cetera. Right. Um and so I think it's always been something I care about. And so I I want to be doing this work because it is a calling and also um it's not just about fulfilling my filling my cup. It's like I, I think we want people to do work they want to do. Two, I feel like I do a good job at it. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't say I'm the best person who's ever done anything, but I actually I care enough to do a really good job and to put myself into it mm-hmm. and to make sure the work is done well. The second question. So of course we know each other, but anyone who's connected to social media or even just hears you talk, you speak so lovingly and glowingly of your wife and of your children. And I know of all things, that's like the thing that you're the most like focused on. Yeah. Having a job that is so intense and has so so yeah. many parts from both like just like a systems level to like the the day to day, like what you actually do. How do you keep that spark um, of being able to just be in life with your family? How do you do that for yourself? I think it's it's the perspective. It's always I mean, it's weird to say, but it's. I guess the best way is it's helpful that my dad has died, right? In that way, like there's a perspective there. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's the finality, right? It's there. Mm-hmm. There's an end to this. Mm-hmm. And the work is this, and it's important. And these are my my kids, and this is the time I have with them, right? Mm-hmm. And so some recently someone I know, uh, in a forum said like, oh, I have a newborn. I'm training for this marathon, and I'm like, I'm having a hard time balancing things. Mm-hmm. My response was something like, you should just, do the next, mar- I mean, I've run three marathons. This is nothing against mar- running marathons and I'm training for two more, but like, mm-hmm. just do the next one. Like your baby's only going to be a baby today and tomorrow. And like every day they're growing and you're losing time, right? That's the finality of it, right? Not to get super existential, but mm-hmm. like this time won't come back. You can't wind it back. It's not a tape mm-hmm. that you can spin backwards, you know, et cetera. So uh, it's about like maintaining like a, a real focus on presence and saying like this is you know there's moments like i'm scrolling emails like everybody else but then i'm like i try to be mindful like oh man my phone is in my hand and like i should be looking at my kid so i'm going to put this down and i'm going to dedicate time to this after he goes to bed mm-hmm. like when he goes to bed i'll write my emails i'll write notes i'll do whatever i need to do right now this goes over here so i can be here now mm-hmm. and like this will only be here today and tomorrow this will be a historical footnote so mm-hmm. like what have I got here? Like I've got today. Yeah. And so I think uh, going back to hardcore, it's like, it takes me, you know, I try to remind myself like whatever I need to do, like just start today. Yeah. Like whatever it is, like just start today. Yeah. Like it's like, okay, it doesn't have to be perfect today, but just start it. Yeah. And I can finish it as I go, but like I can at least start today. Dude. And isn't it so wild? This like record from the eighties is like, that's a, like just good sage wisdom. Yeah. Shout out yeah. Wally and, yeah. and the crew, Gorilla Biscuits, uh, the best. Love, love the band, love you guys. I, I don't know how many people have they've been like, I can't figure out when to start doing this thing or I want to do this thing. I'm like, just start today. Like, you want to be a runner? Like, just go run a block, yeah. run a mile. Like, just start. And so they should like, write you a royalties check, man. I know, they should. I should start. <laughs> get up, Jordan. And I know Walter's a fellow runner, so he, he's got to get it. Totally. All right, man. Uh, last question. Yeah. It's the dreaded question, but I know you've prepped for it. So, the three most important to you. Okay. Punk or hardcore? Releases, Ooh, releases from the bay area releases okay oh releases been prepped for releases you want to do bands i can i can probably come up with releases so uh but it has to be bay area only yeah so 
the Op Ivy album. Uh, oh. It's like a godsend. I can't believe. And wherever Patrick is, I can't believe you failed that. Um, <laughs> that was the easiest answer. It was just Op Ivy. Uh, and I say this is someone who came to Op Ivy way later. Mm-hmm. I thought all the people wearing Op Ivy patches, like, I don't, whatever they're into is not my thing. Yeah. And so there was a day where I was scrubbing floors in a house we were moving into, and someone put on an Op Ivy cassette. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, you know, this is long after you knew you and I know each other. This is like 2006. Wow. And I was like, latecomer, man. Yeah, I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. What is this? Yeah. This genius. Um, and from there, sage wisdom. I tell people all the time, like, and even when I'm training them or whatever, I was like, look, I need you to tell me you're the expert. I'm, I may be in charge, but you have subject matter expertise. Mm-hmm. All I know is that I don't know nothing, <laughs> and that's and that's fine. I need you to tell me. And I'm like, some guy named Socrates said that, but also Op Ivy said that. So yeah. uh, I'm going to stick with Op Ivy being the more important one. Cool. Um, so Op Ivy won. Um, I'm probably going to say like that era, Black Sales era AFI is like near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's well, just, also like near to perfection. Yeah. It's like it's, it is gold. Yeah. It's gold. Um, I'll give you an underappreciated one. And this is a shout out. Look back and laugh was an incredible band mm. that did not get the the credit they should in retrospect yeah. um and so I, I catch myself sometimes like if that band had come out today what would that have been yeah it would have yeah, been, yeah. been fantastic um but then if we're looking for the actual it's the nerve agents um it's another eric o band not redemption mm. but i love the nerve agents what days of the white days owl of, days of the white owl what a record, man. And so those are That's actually a perfect record. It is. And that's what I'm saying. It's like those are the I thought about this this morning and I sent it to a thread of friends. I was like, Am I correct? Did you sneak in a fourth a fourth band? I did. There? I threw a fourth one in there too. I got uh, my right, right, back right. and laugh in there. Um and shout out to Casey. Yeah. Um okay, listen, dude, that's a great list. You threw some outsiders in there. Everyone's gonna say AFI. Yeah. Of 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 course. Yeah. I think you're the only person who hit off Ivy though. Um, dude, awesome. All right, so we got to close off. No, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Heck yeah. Awesome. All right, everyone. Uh, this was an amazing conversation. Um, I got so much out of it. I got like pulled off my soapbox by Harshit, which I love. Uh, this is a really cool conversation. So if you are out there, you want to make a difference, you want to do anything, there's no better time than now. Start today. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.